Welcome to part two of my conversation with Pulitzer Prize winning photographer, David Kennerly. In this episode of my conversation with David, we'll talk to him about his experiences as a wartime photographer in Vietnam. Don't forget to go to my website, tanyaackershow.com, so you can see my interview with David and see his pictures. In the meantime, here I am with David Kennerly. Another place uh, you took us was Vietnam. You were a war photographer in Vietnam. Uh, there are actually two photos from your Vietnam portfolio, which is part of uh, what won you the Pulitzer. One is the cover of your book, Shooter, and you've got your head, one hand on your helmet, the other hand holding your camera. The next picture uh, from Vietnam that really struck me was one where you're kind of trudging along with a platoon right in the swamp, right, right. in the thick of it. Were you afraid <clears throat> while you were there? I was afraid of getting my cameras wet, probably. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, stuff like that goes through my mind. Um, oh, I, there were many times where I was scared. I, I came close, you know, more times than I'd like to remember. Sometimes I probably didn't even know to getting uh, killed. And, and uh, But that's the kind of drive. It's not just me, but anybody doing that kind of business. Uh, that's one of the risks. My book, Shooter, which you showed there, was uh, dedicated to the photographers who were killed in Vietnam. Uh, and there were 17 of them, I think, during the course of the war. The first was Robert Kappa. The last was Michelle Laurent, who was a good friend of mine. I didn't know Kappa, but uh, who was killed as the North Vietnamese invaded South Vietnam or Saigon. And that's the kind of dedication to this day that photographers uh, bring to their business. Why was it important for you to be there? It's such a weird story because when I was here in California, um, uh, in, in 1967, I went into the army uh, six months, uh, National Guard Reserve thing. And, and really, I, I had no political uh, dog in the hunt on the Vietnam War. I went into the army but then I found that I would need to get out of the army to go to the war. And I was compelled to go to Vietnam because four of my classmates from Westland High School in, in uh, uh, Westland, Oregon, were killed in Vietnam. And these are, I came from a small graduating class and I wanted to go to Vietnam to see what was killing my friends and, and so many young Americans. And that was all part of me being a news photographer. It's the biggest news story going. But I did have to manipulate uh, the Army into giving me a leave of absence because they, they didn't exactly have weekend meetings in Saigon. <laughs> and so I got out of uh, the Army. I went to Vietnam for over two years as a combat photographer. Was it hard for you to separate yourself from some of the violence that you saw happening? Because, I mean, I would imagine that if you've got to capture an image, you've got to pull back for a minute and make sure that you're getting it and not get yourself lost in the moment. There was such an array of feelings about it. Number one, driven to get the pictures. And number two, you know, wanting to stay alive in the process. You talk about emotional, um, emotional detachment from your subjects and all of that. I don't know, really know how to explain that uh, because you're there. There's no question you're there. 
part of your mind is saying, well, if I have my camera up, nobody's, nothing will happen to me. That's not true. Uh, it's a great thing to do to fool yourself into it. But um, I think um, I worried about my getting killed, but not to the degree that I didn't keep doing it. And uh, uh, my detachment from what was going on was I always felt involved. I, the pictures are an extension of what I was thinking and feeling. I've thought a lot about this over the years because I've been, so many people I know from not only Vietnam, but every other war since and before, of course, uh, have, have had had to deal with like post-traumatic stress difficulties and uh, why I dodged that bullet all, I, I don't know. In a way, that, that's been luckier than physically getting shot because I know so many people that never could get their mind out of what happened there. You found out that you won the Pulitzer while you were on the ground in Vietnam. Tell me what that was like, because you're getting some very good news while you're in the middle of a very violent and traumatic situation. What's going through your head at the time? Well, I, um, I first off, I didn't know that I'd been entered for the Pulitzer uh, contest. So this was like a lightning bolt. And in my profession, uh, winning a Pulitzer Prize is like a, a huge deal. Uh, they don't give that many of them out. And um, I, w I was in Saigon when I found out, and I thought it was a joke. I thought there was a cable that came in. And I was, uh, at that point, the bureau chief for UPI Photos in, uh, in Vietnam. And uh, it and after an exchange of uh, telexes, you couldn't, we never talked on the phone over there. It was clear that I'd won. And, uh, and I just, I didn't know what to think about that. Uh, that and there was no anxiety about it because I didn't know I'd been entered. And nowadays it's such a big deal right. where everybody knows that they've been entered. And I, Dirk Halstead showed up. And Dirk was my mentor, really. Uh, he had been a UPI photographer. He was now working for Time Magazine. He showed up in Saigon <clears throat> that day and wanted to know where the action was. So the next day, I went out with him. Uh, we drove up outside of Saigon where there was some heavy fighting and got pinned down in the picture on the cover of my book, Shooter, Dirk took. And this is the day after I won the Pulitzer Prize. And that, I think, is the day I came the closest to getting killed. We were surrounded by North Vietnamese. Uh, there were at least 20 or 25 Vietnamese soldiers got killed within about 100 square yards of where we were, like right next to us and all around. And I thought, this is so stupid. I win the pill surprise, now I'm going to go out and get whacked <laughs> <laughs> without even celebrating, really. You know, and then what I really was thinking was like all my friends were going to think what, a, what an idiot I was <laughs> for not taking a couple days off. And, um, uh, but I made it through there, but it, it changed my life. Uh, I mean, the one thing a Pulitzer guarantees you is a free obituary in the New York times <laughs> Pulitzer prize winner dead, you know? So, uh, um, but I, it was a door opener. I was a young guy. I had to really deal with what it meant because it was so significant really in, in, in my business. <clears throat> I mean, I, I think, Everything that happened from that time on, it was kind of informed by that. I got hired by Life magazine 
I was, uh, if not their last photographer, one of their last photographers before they folded. And that was a dream, uh, being a life photographer. It was really an iconic publication. Well, it was, and all these great photographers, that's how, <clears throat> pre-television, that's how people got their visual renderings of what was happening in the world. Like Margaret Burke White and Robert Caput, all these, uh, Alfred Isis had all these legendary photographers, one of whom uh, was Larry Burroughs, whose uh, 1965 story called Yankee Papa 13, which was a designation of this helicopter in Vietnam, really made me think about wanting to go to Vietnam as a photographer to be like him. And it was the most dramatic story I've ever seen about a young um, a crew chief who's kind of smiling and they get on the helicopter at the beginning. So he follows him through this day. And during the course of that two or three hours, it was a harrowing ordeal where um, one of their colleagues, got, one of their uh, friends' helicopters was shot down. They rescued him. One of, the, one of them was dead. And he's on the floor of the helicopter, and this guy's screaming, and and that was the cover of the magazine. And uh, but the most poignant photo was at the at the end of that story, and this guy's weeping by himself in a little warehouse, and it was like a Shakespearean play with a beginning, a middle, and an end. And I was just profoundly affected by that. It was the year I was. I think it was May of uh, 1965, which is when I graduated from high school. And uh, I, I never met Larry Burroughs. He was killed uh, right before I got to Vietnam. That moment, the day after you got the Pulitzer, yeah. when uh, you and the battalion you were with were pinned down by the Viet Cong, was, what was going through your mind? I mean, were you thinking, what am I doing here? Did you start to rethink your mission at that point, coming so close to death? Well, I mean, that was part of it. And what was funny was that one of the guys, it was, it was Dirk and me and a guy by the name of Leon Daniel, who was a former Marine and he'd been wounded in Vietnam. And we were standing on the road. We drove out on a, in a civilian car because we heard this operation was going on. So we're standing on this road, Highway 13, a little road, like two-lane highway. And there's this little ping. Just that it was the first thing that happened. And a, a bullet ricocheted off the, the uh, pavement, like right near the foot where he had been shot, <laughs> like in the Korean War. And all of a sudden, the, 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 it just opened up with all these people shooting at us and incoming uh, mortars. And, uh, and we, we dived off to the side of the road. And our, we told our car to take off. And he, he took off down the road and a, a B-40 rocket exploded right behind him. And now we're out there on our own with these uh, Vietnamese airborne people. And there, I think it was the biggest firefight I'd ever been in. Uh, and I'd been there quite a while at that point. And um, I, I mean, I really did think I was going to get whacked. I, I, there was no question about it. But I'm working. You know, I mean, it's not like I hadn't been in the, that kind of a situation. And I'm going, 
and I think about religion, and I'm I'm an Episcopalian, so uh, you got a, real religious. At no, that so moment, it's, huh? not, uh, it's sort of the non-guilt religion. Yeah. like you know, it's handy. Take it off the shelf whenever you think you need it. You know, you needed it then. Uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm thinking like there have been so many times like I pray to God. I said, if you get me out of this one, I'll never do this again. Of course, the next day. <laughs> Thanks, God. I'm going to go give it one more shot. I thought there was a good chance we were going to make it out of there. And there were two American uh, uh, advisors there. One was a sergeant, one was a lieutenant. One of them was a Canadian and um, uh, who was in the U.S. Army. And we're down as all the stuff was happening. It started raining, and so they couldn't bring in, like, uh, airstrikes and and. and you could see the North Vietnamese soldiers like running across the road. Like, well, I never saw that. That was the first time. It, and, and the uh, one of the soldiers, one of the Vietnamese soldiers going, VC, VC. And the, 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 uh, the sergeant um, uh, started yelling at me. He says, don't yell at him, shoot him. <laughs> <laughs> and, so, and I'm taking pictures. And, uh, and, you know, like stuff's blowing up. People are getting killed. And I'm thinking, this is it. And, and then the, the weather cleared a little bit, and they were able, these American advisors called in airstrikes on the positions, which weren't that far away. And uh, that saved the day for us, really. And everything kind of quieted down. All of a sudden, I hear this, um, and we look down the road, and there's our driver coming back to get us. And in the midst of gunfire and everything else, and he screeches up, and we wave goodbye to the military advisors, and we we got took off and got out of there. And this is after about eight or nine hours of being pinned down. And you're you're snapping photos the whole time. Yeah, yeah. I thinking you're going to die. You're probably going to get whacked, but you're taking pictures. Yeah, the whole but time. I didn't. I mean, if you were just going to like stay hunkered down with your hands over your head, uh, why bother? And, and I think what, in this day and age, and I, I, um, I'm so resentful of the, of the, the president say, talking about the press being the enemy of the people and, and all of that and the fake news. And, 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 and I can't imagine uh, when, when you look at what, not just me, but anybody who's in this business who really does it right, what they go through and the, the risks they take uh, to get the photos. And interestingly, in, in my whole time in Vietnam and spending a lot, of, a lot of it out in the field, and I would show up somewhere with American soldiers uh, where they were, and, um, and they couldn't believe that somebody who didn't have to be there was there. And, and like, they were awestruck by that very fact. And, and they would ask me why. And I said, well, I want people to see what you're doing. You know, I've, I have a lot of respect for the military. And uh, it made a big difference to them. I don't think I had one time where somebody, was, they weren't glad to see us show up. It meant that someone outside of their own cared about what they were doing from the world, they called it. And now, you know, looking at it really from our vantage point, there are generations that know very little about that war. So to have you record it uh, for posterity is critical. Uh, there are just things that people won't learn. Let me ask you this. What makes a picture great 
to you? How do you know when you've got something great? <laughs> I think a common affliction among photographers is they always think that uh, something is great when it's not probably <laughs> or better than it is. Um, in this case, it's an American GI. This is one of the reasons, uh, uh, the, of course, among many of why I would do this is like there's a guy, young guy who's like uh, in in a rainstorm under a poncho, you see his eyes, it's miserable out there. I mean, and of course, on top of that, there's the danger of getting shot and everything else, but just the day-to-day -day part of it, even if nothing was going on, the mosquitoes, the rain, the mud, uh, uh, just the, 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 the inherent danger in it, um, uh, doubt, showing that experience is really important because when you look back on it, you say, wow, there's nothing glamorous about it. Uh, these are dedicated people. And then there's the other side of the coin. Like this was one of my Pulitzer pictures of uh, We're young... looking at pictures of two young kids uh, surrounded by a couple of dead buffalo. They're not dead. Oh, they're not. No. Are they sleeping? They're not. Well, water buffalo are not that active. But, I thought uh, they were dead. <laughs> they're not dead. No, no. No. Because if they were dead, these poor kids wouldn't have... That. Those were their buffalo, and they were a little... Uh, I called this picture the Buffalo Boys. So, this, see, this they're is why we need... They're taking care of the water buffalo. So, about 100 yards away from this, this is in Cambodia, uh, there was a firefight going on. And, and this moment, to me, is really what I would see all the time in a war, where right around the corner, something bad's happening... And right around the other corner, life is going on. And so these kids were certainly affected by the war, but their main job is to take care of the water buffalo who are alive and, uh, <laughs> and just going down the canal. This is a, and it's a kind of a joyful moment. And I, I'm, you know, that, that picture makes me really happy that they're alive and they're thriving and, and they're living in danger. You don't know unless you're there what's really going on, and and to show that, and you can't show everything. When pictures do lie, depending on the context, if people want to like misrepresent something. Uh, on the other hand, uh, they tell the story, particularly coming from credible sources. Those of us who do this for a living work for organizations where if you manipulate the images, you are fired. There needs to be honesty uh, accompanying those pictures so you really do believe them. We're living in a world now where people are just trying not to believe anything no, they hear or see. It's very easy to make things up, which is why it's so important to have an actual record. That's uh, right, and it's happened. a primary source information. Thank you for tuning in to part two of my conversation with David Kennerly. Don't forget to join me for part three, where I'll talk to David about some of his adventures with people who do politics. In the meantime, don't forget to check out my website, tanyaackershow.com, so you can see our interview and see David's pictures. And you should also check out David's website, kennerly.com. Also, you should know that David's collection is housed at the Center for Creative Photography at the University of Arizona. So if you have a chance to check it out, you really should. In the meantime, we'll see you for part three. Stay safe and be well. The Tanya Acker Show is written and executive produced by me. My editor is Rich Marchuka. My composer is Cole Mitchell. My production assistant is Rachel Robillard. And my interview with David Kennerly was recorded at the Network Studios in Culver City, California.